Welcome to Answering the Call, Conversations with Practitioners, a podcast series from The Ready Room. I'm Sydney. And I'm Josh. And today we are joined by Colonel Steve Erickson, the Chief of Logistics and Sustainment Operations Plans, J43, at NORAD and U.S. Northern Command. I had the pleasure of interning in the J43 last summer under Colonel Erickson and had a very exciting and insightful experience. Colonel Erickson, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Well, we're excited to talk to you. I know you've had a long career in the Army. You've been up in Colorado Springs for a while. And we want to get your thoughts on your career, the balloon fiasco, and beyond. So I'll go ahead and start asking you, can you describe for our listeners the mission of NORAD and U.S. NORTHCOM? Yeah, sure. Happy to. And 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 I'll even start with kind of giving you, uh, you know, what what we're trained to do in the military is just talk with our uh, public affairs team, and and they've got three messages that they said, you know, you really should start with this. So I'll start with these because this is what we do, and I can't go wrong uh, if I just said these three things and left you there. Uh, but of course, we'll talk more. So homeland defense is the number one priority and mission for uh, U.S. NORTHCOM uh, and NORAD. We uh, are a CONUS-based structure, which means we're, we're based out of the continental United States, and, and we use uh, forces that are allocated or assigned to us. Uh, every combatant command, which we are, uh, has these. Um, and, and we often find ourselves competing for resources because there's just not enough to go around. And what most people are uh, familiar with what we do here at NORTHCOM and NORAD is DISCA, which is Defense Support of Civil Authorities. And, and that's what you normally would see in the news. Uh, you mentioned the balloon. There was a law enforcement piece of that. So we, we were in support of that. Wildfires in support of that. Hurricanes and disaster relief were in support of that. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today as well. And this is what you can actually look at and, and, and pull up online if you want to check my work. But uh the mission of NORAD and U.S. NORTHCOM, it's kind of two parts. Uh, we're two commands in one. Uh, we are uh, under the same roof. Uh, in fact, if you've ever watched the movie War Games uh, with Matthew Broderick, who I believe was his birthday yesterday, he turned 60, I think. They show the mountain, Cheyenne Mountain, in that movie. And uh, from the outside, that's accurate, right? So when, when people think of you know Cheyenne Mountain and, and U.S. NORTHCOM and NORAD, uh, we work out of a, a building uh, on... Uh, Peterson Space Force Base, and we have that as Cheyenne Mountain as our alternate location. We have one commander, but two different missions. We are a command that's uh, comprised mostly of civil service employees, so a lot of civilian employees that work for the government. Uh, but we do have our fair share of uniform members uh, that represent all services from Army, Air Force, Marine, Navy, uh, as well as uh, the U.S. Coast Guard. What we really want to do, our, our strategic objective, if you will, is to ensure a safe and secure Canada and United States. So the two commands, NORAD being the first one, uh, is stands for North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's a Canadian and U.S. binational command which conducts aerospace warning, aerospace control, maritime warning uh, in the defense of North America. So if you go back to the, the example I gave of war games, right? Uh, you've got the four-star general in there that's changing uh, or that's watching map, maps on the, uh, on the computers and on the wall, and they are defending uh, the, the continental United States. And we do so uh, with Canada. So in that regard, our COCOM commander, our combatant commander, General Van Herc, he works for both 
the president and the prime minister, which is kind of neat. We're the only command uh, that's configured that way. The second half is U.S. NORTHCOM, which is United States Northern Command, which uh, if, if you're a, a history buff, uh, you probably already know this, but we stood up after the uh, the attacks on 9-11. Uh, and, and our missions uh, are to deter, to detect, deny, and defeat threats to the continental United States uh, while conducting security cooperation with Mexico and Bahamas, uh, support requests for assistance from civil authorities, as I talked about earlier about DISCA. Uh, and, and our top priority is the defense of our homeland. And, uh, you know, the best way we can do that is to be resilient and ready. Yeah. So, Colonel Erickson, can you tell us a little about your uh, personal background? What led you to join the military and ultimately to your role at NORAD U.S. NORTHCOM? So it's probably not going to be exciting. But what I will tell you is uh, I'm a military brat. My dad was uh, enlisted, uh, retired uh, a little more than 20 years as a uh, first sergeant in the United States Army. We retired down in Columbus, Georgia. Coming out of high school, to be quite honest with you, uh, I did what I told my son never to do. I applied to uh, one scholarship and, and one school, and I, and I was, luckily for me, I, I, I was accepted, right? Um, so I was accepted to an Army ROTC scholarship. Uh, I went to North Georgia College, uh, just north of Atlanta, and uh, received my commission uh, into the United States Army there. My plan originally was just to do uh, my four-year commitment and get out, but life gets in the way, you know, married had a child, uh, realized that life insurance and, and health insurance is a premium. So uh, we said, yeah, let's let's stick out this military thing for a little bit longer. Uh, and then before you know it, 9-11 happened. And, and that changed a lot of things for a lot of different people. When I uh, deployment came back and, uh, and before you knew it, I was about almost 10 years in the service. And, uh, and I said, you know what? I'm either going to do 20 years or get out when I stop having fun. And lucky for me, uh, now here I am, 27 years of service. Uh, I guess I'm still having some fun. I, I began my career as an armor officer, uh, transitioned to sustainment and logistics uh, a few years into that. And, uh, and I've been at uh, leadership or command positions at every level from company to brigade. Uh, I've got a, about three deployments, operational deployments underneath my belt. I, I was uh, allowed to come here to, to NORAD headquarters in Colorado Springs, which was which was great because uh, my brother lives up uh, near near uh, Denver, and uh, we we haven't lived close to each other since uh, I was in college. So, so there you go. What drew you to logistics and sustainment? Well, I'll tell you, the Army drew me to logistics by saying you're going to go do sustainment and logistics. <laughs> uh, when when I came in, I said I wanted to be an armor officer. I wanted to do the things that you see on recruiting videos and. And uh, drive around in tanks and blow things up because, well, that's just, you know, when you're when you're 22 years old, that's what you want to do. And, but the government said, hey, we, we've got some other plans. We want to send you to go learn how to do sustainment logistics and things like that. And I told you I was thinking about getting out. And so it didn't really matter. Right. So I was just going to say, hey, I'm going to move on, uh, take my life wherever it goes. And uh, but it dawned on me. I said, you know what? Sustainment sure does translate to civilian life a lot better uh, or easier anyway. Uh, than being able to move, you know, shoot, move, and communicate on a tank and close within uh, and destroy the enemy. But what I was able to do was find that sustainment operations is in every aspect from cradle to grave uh, of anything you could imagine. And every organization, whether they jump out of airplanes, whether they uh, fly a, a jet, a helicopter, float on, a, float in a boat, uh, or a vessel out at sea, uh, they all start and end with with 
sustainment and logistics. So I was able to scratch the itch of getting back to uh, maneuver uh, organizations and, and tanks and Bradleys and things like that, which I, I just find amazing and fun. Uh, but I got to be there all the time with sustainment logistics and turned out I was pretty good at it. So uh, the Army let me keep doing that. Well, I want to ask you about the past couple of months. We've seen that NORAD's been in the center of national security news with the balloons and unidentified objects being shot down across the U.S. I know you can't discuss the actual details of these missions, but could you describe what it's like to be in the building during such a high-tempo operation? Yeah, so so I'll start with, yeah, I think it's important for everybody to understand or, or just to be aware of that, that we do this every day. Um, the, the balloon thing uh, was just a thing uh, that happened, uh, you know, on, on, on a, in this case, it happened on a particular day and it seemed like it lasted for a, a good solid week because we were all looking up at the sky watching it. But, but every day of the year, NORAD uh, is, is actively watching and observing and detecting, monitoring and assessing objects that go into the North American uh, airspace uh, to include maritime uh, economic exclusion zones when you start looking east and west out to the oceans. It, when objects are deemed as a threat or, or, or can't be you know, discerned what they are and what they're doing, uh, then NORAD, uh, you know, through again, the, the combatant commander's direction and guidance uh, and orders given, you know, the authorities given to him by the pre president as well as the prime minister, you know, NORAD uh, has the authority to take action to limit the impact to both U.S. and, and Canadian interests. And, and I think most people who, who would be listening in were watching with, uh, with eagerness to see what is it, where is it, and then all the questions of why didn't we do something sooner, faster, or, or when did we really know, and different things like that. And, and, and it's a whole lot of things go into to that, that level. There, there's guidance from the, from the White House, from the Prime Minister's office, uh, from the, the Pentagon, uh, as well as the Canadian services and things of that nature. A lot of assessment watching, is it, you know, is there a threat to, to people, a threat to aircraft? And, and a lot of back and forth goes through. And, and, you know, to us, that was kind of exciting because, you know, we don't get to do this every single day for such a, a prolonged period. But to be quite honest, it was almost a regular day. Um, we've got people that work in the building 24 hours a day because we have airplanes and aircraft that fly across our, our countries, uh, all the time. Uh, and, and we're always watching. Uh, and, and in fact, that's the motto of, uh, NORAD Northcom is we have the watch. Yeah. You know, if you could, if you had to picture that one particular day of that week, when we're all looking at a computer screen or a teleprompter up on, or a, a big screen up on the wall, you know, uh, we were watching a, a map with a little dot on it that's showing this is where it's at but on the other side of the room we had you know fox news or cnn and we saw a live view of it uh, at the same time so uh it, it it was uh not as exciting as what some might think but but it was kind of a regular day it did extend our hours a little bit because you know normally events that happen in our airspace they happen in the in, in a relatively quick time you know for example uh, if the president is, uh, you know, traveling, for example, um, NORAD works with the FAA to ensure that flight patterns don't go directly over the, the president if he's in a meeting, right? So things of that nature. And, and if there's an aircraft or, or there's something that's going towards that, you know, we work with the FAA to coordinate them to deviate change or, 
or do those things. So when, when it started, it was a very much normal operation that, that we do. It just it was just one that turned into an observation wait for a final determination. And and then, you know, I, I think it was a Saturday around 1.30 our time that uh, we all saw it on, on the news live together. There are several directorates within NORAD Northcom. Uh, you work in the J-43, which executes logistics planning. Uh, can you tell us about your specific duties as the J-43 and what kind of operations and functions do you manage? Yeah, so I, I think uh, it's, you know, not sure if everybody understands how, how typical military organizations are are, are constructed or, or organized, uh, but, you know, there are, uh, several directorates, uh, operations for one, communications as another, um, human resources and, and logistics, and, and, and there's several others. So, so yeah, exactly as you said, I, I'm in the J4, which does logistics and engineering for the two commands. Specifically, as part of the J4, I'm in the J43, which is uh, operations and, and planning. Uh, so we, we're broken up kind of into three three branches within my my division. And uh, we have current operations, which is kind of responsible for uh, the day-to-day operations that are happening. We, we've got what we call a joint operations center. And uh, in, in using uh, the balloon as example, those that was my team that, that was plugged in 24 hours a day, just looking and watching and seeing if something goes on. A while back, uh, not too long ago, really, uh, when, when Operation Allies Welcome happened, uh, the, the Afghan refugees... Uh, and and uh, we're migrating over here uh, to the United States. My operations center uh, was at the pulse of that, watching where they were, where they were going, and making sure that they had the uh, the, the things that that were needed to uh, to execute that that operation. You know, essentially, it's a it's a center to track operations, uh, missions that are ongoing, and they they coordinate the execution of of logistics for all operations that really go from. The organization uh, or unit assigned to execute that uh, all the way down, you know, to the the soldier or airman on the ground, all the way up to the joint staff who provides some guidance uh, as well. The, the second uh, branch is the uh, the plans branch, uh, which is really it's a uh, it's a group of what I like to call functional subject matter experts. Uh, and what they look at are service policies, DOD specific services, Air Force, Army, Navy, etc., and they take the requirements given to us by our national command authority, you know, our government, and we look at, you know, how do we defend, you know, in terms of NORAD or NORTHCOM against threats against Canada and the United States. Uh, they look at, you know, in a very deliberate and long-term approach, you know, the defense of homeland. And if something were to change or, or if there was something that would happen, and we can use the Ukraine example, about a year ago uh, when Russia... Uh, invaded Ukraine. You know, our planners came together and said, "Okay, this is what's going on now. How does this impact us?" And let's let's ask ourselves the "what if" question and start looking at some deliberate planning approaches. Uh, should we have to adjust or change based on guidance from our our national military authorities? And, and then our our third one is our training readiness branches. Exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we've got a, it's our smallest but pretty mighty group of folks that. Uh, check to make sure that we're all trained appropriately uh, and that we're, we're current and accurate uh, in terms of, of how we do our jobs. But they also set up training 
exercises, digital warfighters and, and, and vignettes and things like that for us to kind of go into a, to a room or into a, I like to call it a dark room because that's kind of how it is. You go in the morning before the sun comes up and you're usually in there until the sun goes down. Uh, but we go through and we start from the beginning of an operation all the way through the end of an operation, all the different requirements uh, and, and actions that we might need to take. So you've talked about the importance of logistics and how, you know, it doesn't get enough credit that it deserves. And there's a great quote from President Eisenhower that you won't find it difficult to prove that battles, campaigns, and even wars have been won or lost primarily because of logistics. I want to ask you what your biggest challenge has been in the J-4-3. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge of the 43 is, is probably what you'll find almost anywhere um, and, and sustainment or otherwise, but, um, you know, I, I like to think sustainment operations are, are pretty simple. It's kind of a math equation. It's all based on a requirement, right? So you take the requirement and then you determine what are your capabilities, what are your shortfalls, and then you figure out how to, you know, on, on either end of the, the formula equation is, you know, where do I add or subtract, um, to get to that requirement? So from that piece, it's pretty simple, especially if you have all the toys you need. But what we find when we're doing this math problem is we're not in a room full of math geeks uh, or people who know how to do simple math. What we end up finding is that, especially here in, in Northcom, is we're dealing with the several different services, all the services. We're dealing with uh, the joint staff who has several services there. We're dealing with the interagency partners, FEMA and the like. So we get a whole bunch of people into a room and the hardest thing sometimes is to determine what is the true requirement. We all know what needs to be done from our own lens and vantage point, but sometimes we've got to stop, pause, and ask the question, what is the problem statement and what is the problem and uh, the requirement that we need to solve? So and I'm sure you, you you both see this as you're you're putting together group projects and trying to brief out um, projects and things like that. Uh, but but trying to uh, get everybody on the same sheet of music, have uh, one set of facts and assumptions that you can work from, and then you hope that the situation doesn't change because truth has a date timestamp, and at nine o'clock in the morning our requirement is X, and and about twelve one o'clock we're almost we almost got it. And at two o'clock, somebody walks in and says, okay, team, same problem, but now we have a different requirement. So we got to sometimes pause, go back and figure out how do we fix those things. So the, the, the biggest piece isn't try to figure out or, or have someone tell you how they want something solved, but, but to lay out the problem or the requirement. And, and then you apply solutions that way. I'm not sure if you're able to say, but was there a particular disc mission that you worked that was hard from a logistics point of view? They're all kind of hard um, in, in that when when we have to support civil authorities, it's it's one for a really good reason because we've got you know our citizens who are who are in need. Um, and, and what probably makes it the the most difficult is is there's a certain level of authorities that go along with it. So governors have to declare emergencies. Presidents have to declare emergencies sometimes before we can execute or or apply military solutions to help out our, our partners. So in, since like 2019, for example, uh, we've, North, NORAD NORTHCOM has done about 480 mission assignments 
Uh, and, and each mission assignment is very specific in, in need. It's provide generators, you know, provide transportation, provide medical support. Um, and, and all that could be to an event that could be hurricane flooding down in Louisiana, for example, right? Um, but there's been about 80, almost 90 events in the last three to four years. So what we see on television and, and in the news and, and on the radio is when things go bad, it, it's it's pretty bad, right? So so right now, out in California, they're having their 13th or 14th atmospheric river coming through, bringing in all kinds of, of atmospheric weirdness. They are getting just dumped with snow uh, to the point where people are using snow blowers and, and machines to get snow off the roofs. Supplies and food aren't getting out to smaller communities. People can't drive. You know, so the governors have declared emergencies for that. And, you know, so that's just an example of what we're watching. Um, and then just this weekend, we, we, we've got another one coming through that's going to bring rain. And, and all rain does to snow is make it heavy. And so we anticipate roofs and buildings to collapse. We anticipate all that to freeze over and they have more ice. It, it's, it's those kind of things uh, that, that we watch and, and we look for. Uh, but hurricanes Ida, Dorian, several years ago, Puerto Rico was hit. Um, you know, and, and we looked at those things. When COVID was, was COVID, not that it's not now, uh, but we, we sent uh, a lot of military support in terms of medical materiel, to include people, you know, uh, providers, nurses, doctors, and things like that, and, and people like that out to uh, different locations to help get vaccines out, you know, quarantine people and, and different things like that. All that was at the uh, the request of Department of, of uh, Health Services. We, we have a continued presence down on the southwest border. Uh, we've actually been down there for about 17 of the last 22 years uh, in some capacity supporting uh, Customs Border Patrol. Uh, and, and again, all those things are agencies uh, or departments uh, in government that when they find themselves overwhelmed, the, the easy solution sometimes is to ask for help. Uh, and, and where do you have that help? Well, sometimes the DOD is the, the, the quick or easy solution. Not always, uh, but sometimes uh, we, we find ourselves assisting, especially in, in instances uh, in crisis where uh, it's a short term and duration you know, like hurricane or, or, or wildfire type things. I would be remiss if I, if I didn't add this one every year, uh, we track Santa Claus too. <laughs> so we, we do. And, and if I remember right, Sydney, I think you got to help with NORAD track Santa. Um, but I think that's probably a whole nother podcast. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I actually met the voice of NORAD track Santa, which was big moment for me. Big that's moment. Awesome. <laughs> so Colonel Erickson, in your opinion, how is the nature of logistics changing as the United States moves away from two decades uh, in the war on terror in the Middle East and into the era of strategic competition with rivals China and Russia? So this could be a, a question for a podcast all to its own. Um, so I'm going to kind of hit the high points and, and, and not get too much into it um, because, you know, there's so much to talk about. But if you go back the last 20 years, and I, and I think it was on the news just the other day, the shock and awe uh, of 2003 when uh, we we started fighting back against Saddam Hussein and ultimately took him out of power and and, and really put us on a trajectory of of different. 
when we did that, we went in for all the right reasons that, you know, we thought and, and we figured out how to go in and, and sustain ourselves. And, and over time, we ended up staying so long that we changed the way we do sustainment. We went from a very expeditionary mindset to go in, um, get forces where they need to do to do the missions that they need to do, to then we maintained a presence and, and we consolidated uh, into what we call Ford operating bases and things like that. And um, I won't say sustainment was easy, but it was kind of a, a hub and spoke or a stockpile approach where units would start in pick a location. Uh, in the morning, they'd wake up, they'd go out to their mission, and they'd come back, resupply, refit, reorganize, go to sleep, wake up and do it again. And we did that for about 20 years. And, and in doing that, uh, we got really good at it. Well, now we're not doing those things anymore. So now what we've got to do is transition back to an expeditionary mindset again. Uh, we've got to figure out how do we extend what we call the commander's reach, his operational reach or her operational reach. And how do we maintain tempo uh, and pace on the battlefield uh, in, in one, in a manner that allows us to do and impose our will on our enemy, but not to be bogged down, have to slow down, uh, and uh, and not be able to accomplish their missions. It, it's a tough one to answer. It's, like I said, really really short and easy, but it, it, it all comes back down to sustainment enables the warfighter, and, and how do we do those things? And we've got to be ready to go you know, out to a location and be expeditionary and, and sustain operations. But yeah, when, what, if we're, what if we're not doing those things? And, and I think when you look at it from that piece, it's, it's how do we do our day-to-day -day and, and use a NORTHCOM as the example. We don't have standing forces ready to, to go and close with and destroy the enemy because that's not what we do. Uh, our job is to defend the United States. Um, so it's, it's kind of how, how do we look to campaign every day to show resilience and, and uh, deter our enemies who might want to do us harm. Uh, and, and, you know, we start looking at how do we do that sustainment. We, we do that through a lot of different ways, through fuels, through munitions, through operational contracting, because we're in the United States, we have something different there. Uh, but but we look at, at all domains, the air, the land, the sea, the cyber, you know, and, and as well as the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum, uh, for example. So we, we do get expeditionary once in a while when we send people out to do, say, wildfire support. And you know, we've got small teams on the ground we got to get them food, but that's a very tactical approach. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like a complicated problem, but I guess that's why they say amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And I'll tell you from my career, you know, in 27 years, um, as, as a young, young officer doing sustainment operations, a lot of times people would just not get it. They'd just want that stuff or that thing to appear. Um, but as I, grew and matured and, and worked my way up the ranks. And I talked to those same people who were young, you know, infantry, armor, aviation, field artillery guys that were consumers of sustainment and logistics. They'd always come back and say, we need to start with logistics first, because if we can figure out how to get the stuff where it needs to go, then we can do something with it. Uh, and it's not just through uh, pixie dust and, and, and magic spells do things just appear. So this summer, I had the opportunity to work and learn from you. Something I took away from my summer in the J43 was your personal motto, do what is right without hesitation, always. Can you tell us why this is so important to you as a leader? 
Yeah, so so I'll start by giving it credit where it's due. I, I stole that that saying or that motto from uh, my very first battalion commander. Uh, he's retired Lieutenant General James Milano now. It's one that, you know, do what's right without hesitation always. And, and it's it's awkward to say. It's awkward, even more awkward to write. Um, but it's one that if you listen to it and think about it, it, it makes complete sense. And uh, it, it, when we sat down, I think I had about 15 or 20 slides that we talked through. So we won't kill everybody by describing those in detail. But but kind of my one-on-one approach, you know, my leadership philosophy with do what's right without hesitation, comma, always. I think it's, uh, it's all about knowing how I, and I'll use, I'll use the word I for this, but it, you can replace it with the leader, right? Uh, or the boss is how do I think and how do I act? And how does that translate to what's right? And, and that's where, you know, you would then, in the absence of orders, right, understanding my intent, how I act and how I think, you can go out and act on my behalf. And, and you know, to do those things, you've got you've to, one, have the trust, right, of, of the leader, and, and the leader's got to have the trust of the subordinate, but you got to give them that leeway to do it and, and know that if you make a mistake, I got your back. Nobody's going to get fired today. We'll just regroup, reset, and, and we'll do it again and get it right. Again, it all comes down to to trust and, uh, you know, that trust of what's right. You know, it's a small word that means so much, but it, it's a in my idea or my mind, it's it's a uh, it's like a set of handrails. The newer person to the organization or to the job, they don't know as much. So you give them a set of handrails that are easy to grab, you know, on, on each side of them. And they and you tell them to move forward and they, they go and do the things that they can do. And as they get more experience and, and uh and spend more time in the organization and learn and, and grow as, as a leader, as a operator, as a what have you, uh, those handrails start to move out left and right away from them where they don't have to hold on to them anymore. But if they sway left or right, they'll bump into them and, and come back center and, uh, and do those things that, that need to be done for the organization or for the mission. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, what the army would call that is, uh, is disciplined initiative or, or mission command. Uh, in that I give you a mission, I give you an intent, I give you a task and purpose, and then I let you go operate within the limits of your your, your handrails, your guardrails. So, Colonel Erickson, before we wrap up, do you have any words of advice for Bush School students as we prepare to embark on our careers in public service? Yeah, so so I'll tell you, you guys sent me this question, and, and this is the one I spent the most time thinking about. And the one I, I didn't give any of this to the, the PAO because I figured they didn't, I didn't want them to tell me no. I wanted to be able to tell you what I wanted to tell you. And uh, so, so what I did is I, I made out a, a little list and then uh, right before sitting down with you guys, I wrote something else down. So I'll read that to you. But, um, you know, it's, it's easy to be cheesy and, and, you know, can go hallmark on you and give you a bunch of things. So it may sound like that a little bit, but that's not my intent. Um, my intent is to give you about 10 items. If you count them, it's probably like 11 or 12. But uh, of things to consider, and, and this is for people who are in public service or if they're going to go start their own business. Um, I, I think it's things that they, it's worth considering. So first, right, I think it's do what's right without hesitation always. You know, we, we follow a set of rules, whether they're the, the international rules-based order 
or or it's the law don't speed you know if you, you do what's right and and if you've got to hesitate to decide if it's right or not pause stop start over and think about it and then do what's right and then do it without hesitation be competent you, you should strive to be an expert because to be honest with you people are going to pay you to be an expert now there's levels of expertise and it all comes with with uh, knowledge, experience, and, and growth. But you, you've got to be competent at what you do, and you got to get better every day. And you've got to be a lifelong learner. So, you know, the moment you graduate and you throw your your tassel from one side to the other, your your hat goes in the air. You go get that great job. Just realize that if you become stagnant, you'll be stuck there for the rest of your life. Um, that's not what you want. You want to grow. Be authentic and be you. If you try to be somebody else, you'll come in 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 a less than authentic manner and people will see right through you. Find a way to do what's right, to to do your job, to do your mission, to do whatever it is that you're doing, but find a way to be you. Some people are cheesy. Some people are serious. But if you're one of those and you try to be the other, it's going to come disingenuous and, and it's not good. Be a good follower because until you're the boss, you don't know all the answers. And even if you're the boss, you don't know all the answers. So sometimes you've got to learn how to follow from your, your subordinates and you got to follow your peers and, and you've got to understand how to follow the lead, if you will. Over-communicate. Up, down, and laterally. This is one that I'm not good at. I tend to think I got it, figure it out. I'll update my boss at the end of the week. Sometimes you've got to update your boss every day. Sometimes you got to bring in the crew, the team, and have a team meeting every day. Sometimes you'll do it two or three times a day. If you over-communicate, the worst thing that'll happen is they'll say, oh, here we go again. If you under-communicate, it could be mission failure. Be of the three C's. And the three C's are this. Character. Be a man or woman of character. I can show you all day what is right. I can't make you do it. I need you to be a man or woman of character. And that's tied to trust. Be competent. Avoid being micromanaged by being competent, right? If you're competent, your boss will trust you, right? And it makes it easier to be a man and woman of character. And then be committed to the team you're on. Uh, I had an old boss uh, who once said, if the bumper sticker on the back of your truck doesn't match the team that you're on, then you got a problem. You can always be alumni. So you always keep those, you know, wherever you go to school, leave those on there. But if, if you end up working, you know, if, if you are a football player playing for the Atlanta Falcons, damn it, Atlanta Falcons need to be the best team in the world. <laughs> we all, I'm from Georgia, so I can say we know that they're not right now. But you know what? They are, right, if you're on that team. And if, you, if you're traded to the Kansas City Chiefs, good on you. That becomes the best team in the world. Who's, that's really my team, by the way. And let's say I got a few more. Care for people. Care equals empathy, not sympathy. Let's say it that way. So don't ever feel sorry for somebody who's struggling. Empathize with them, then help them out. Feeling sorry for somebody or feeling sorry for yourself doesn't help. Care, empathize, and then figure out how to get the mission done. Um, be ready now. Take care of yourself. You guys are young. You know, you're limber. You're athletic. Eventually, you're going to get old, and you're not going to be those things. Um, and, and that's all things, and, and you can apply that to financial readiness, you know, spiritualness, um, and, and things like that. Build relationships. Hopefully, that's what you're doing uh, every day. 
because uh, your team of teams is going to be what gets you through everything. I've got a whole podcast ready to talk about the know the rules of the game. But if you know how the game is played, you can play within the boundaries and you can interpret the rules to your advantage. Um, so I'll leave it to that. And then maintain balance with all things that you do. And again, there's a whole slide on this that we talked, um, Sydney, and you remember this one. But so what I'll do is I'll quote uh, retired General Hal Moore uh, from the uh, the book and, and the movie that Mel Gibson played. You know, we were soldiers once and young. Uh, what am I doing that I should not be doing? And what am I not doing that I should be? And if you apply those two questions to your life at work, your life at home, your life in the gym, your life in the church, you, you, you pick the place. Find a way to create balance. Because I would tell you, there's no such thing as true balance. You've got to figure out time and place what is important right now. Because something's always going to give. You know, when, when the rent is due, work is important. When you got your savings set up, then vacation becomes important. But you've got to figure those things out. So lastly, the, what, what I'd close you with if, if I was doing a uh, commencement speech uh, is, uh, is have courage. Have courage to know that you are ready more than you think. You know, the world, military, civilian alike, it's full of people just like you. Take in facts, information, and apply it to your situation. And inside your handrails, act on behalf of your organization and team by doing what's right without hesitation always. Be sure to share credit, especially if it's good. Own it if it's not so good. And know that through an evolution of experience that you're guaranteed to have, you'll become better and better. You should be confident of yourself. And I challenge everybody to have courage to be confident of what you can do. That was great. Thank you so much for all of that advice. And I know I certainly took that quote, do what is right, always with me after this summer. So I appreciate it. And thank you again for joining us on our podcast. Well, I appreciate it. And, and uh, I like to say anytime, but these are uh, these, these take some time to prep for. If we ever just have one of those conversations. I'm happy to do so. And uh, Thank you, Colonel Erickson.